Hey there, travelers. I'm Isabella, and this is True Crime International. Today's case brings us to Scotland, one of my favourite countries, where, on the morning of February 23, 1968, a man named Maurice Goodman was on his way to work, headed towards the garages where he kept his car in Battlefield, Glasgow. As he approached the garage where he kept his car, he saw what he thought was a tailor's mannequin, but, upon closer inspection, realised it was the half-frozen, naked body of a young woman. Horrified, he immediately ran home to phone the police. The body was that of Patricia Docker, a 25-year-old nurse who lived just metres away from where she was found, and it was clear to investigators from the start that she had died a horrible death. There was blunt force trauma all over her body, but particularly to her head and face. There were also intense ligature marks on her neck from what investigators believed to be a belt. She was also already in rigor mortis, indicating that she had been dead for a good number of hours. Patricia was naked, but her clothes were nowhere to be found. In fact, to this day, they've never been found. Police did, however, find her purse, which was recovered by an underwater search team that scoured the river cart in the area near where Patricia's body was found. The community was absolutely horrified by the crime, and police wasted no time beginning extensive door-to-door interviews looking for witnesses and trying to piece together what she did in the evening leading up to her murder. Locals around the area she was murdered remember hearing a woman scream, Leave me alone! the night before. But aside from that, very little evidence was actually found in and around the crime scene, both witness statements and physical evidence. Patricia was first identified, not by her family, but by the ambulance driver who came to retrieve her body. He was the one that informed the police who she was. He informed the police that she had been a nurse at the same hospital where he worked. And I I cannot even imagine how traumatic that would be. Like you're just doing your job and you're going to pick up a body. That's your job, part of your job. And the body is that of someone you work with. Like even if they weren't close, he still knew who she was. He still saw her around. I, ca- I cannot imagine how that must feel, even if he didn't know her very well. However, this identification made the police's job of finding her family and getting them to do a formal identification much easier, and they were able to get her father to come to the hospital the next day to confirm that it was indeed Patricia. At the time of her death, she had been living at home with her parents, having been estranged from her husband, with whom she shared a son. She generally worked night shifts at the hospital, which would start around 10pm and went until 8 the next morning, but on the night she was murdered, she was off work and decided to go out with some friends to a dance hall and just enjoy herself. She just wanted to blow off some steam. She got all dressed up and, interestingly, wore her wedding ring, which had belonged to her grandmother. Now, I don't know why she wore it. Maybe... She still hadn't taken it off because she wasn't actually yet divorced from her husband, but she could have also just put it back on as like a a safety thing so she wouldn't be bothered by men at the dance hall. 
That's what I would do, honestly. And I, I have done something like that in the past. And it would make sense for this time because she couldn't exactly pretend to be in a relationship with one of her female friends because homosexuality at this time, I believe, was still illegal in the UK. So pretending to be married to a man was a really good form of defense, I suppose. Obviously, in this instance, it didn't work, but it's still a method that is widely used today. I've I've done both. I've pretended to be in a relationship with one of my female friends, and I've also worn uh, an engagement-looking ring on my ring finger to get men to just leave me the fuck alone. Anyway, Patricia told her parents that she was going to the Majestic Ballroom on Hope Street, but for some unknown reason, Patricia and her friends went to the Barrowland Ballroom, where they were having an over-25s night. Which, if 25 was considered old back then, that just stresses me out because I'm 25 now. Don't I don't like that at all. I don't think over 25 nights are at all a thing anymore. Patricia's parents weren't immediately concerned when she didn't come home the next morning. They just assumed that she had spent the night at one of her friend's houses, which is always a good option if you've been out and you've had a few too many drinks and you don't feel comfortable going home on your own. It's the sensible thing to do. And at this time, it's not like she had a cell phone she could use to text them to let them know the change of plans or that if she was sleeping over somewhere. So they just didn't panic at first. It's also worth noting where Patricia went that night. I don't know if Patricia lied to her parents. Maybe the place that she went didn't have a good reputation. It could just be that the plans simply changed after she went out, or she got things confused. But whatever the reason, it doesn't matter. Patricia wasn't where her parents thought she was going to be that night, and it had consequences in the investigation. The post-mortem revealed that she had indeed died of strangulation, and there were no clear signs of sexual assault, although it was assumed. And she had also been on her period when she died. This at first, was something that was just like quickly jotted down as a side note, and no one really thought much of it, but it actually had much more significance in the investigation down the road. However much the police wanted to catch the killer of this brutal crime, they were unsuccessful. Time kept moving, seasons kept changing, and the year of 1968 ended with hardly any leads. This kept on going until the next victim was found. On the evening of August 16, 1969, 32-year-old Jemima MacDonald kissed her three children goodnight and left them under the supervision of her sister, Margaret, so she could go spend her Saturday night dancing at the Barrowland Hall, the same place Patricia had gone a year and a half earlier. That night, multiple people saw Jemima dancing with a tall, slender, well-dressed man, around 25 to 30 years old, with brown hair and a thick Glaswegian accent. And I think it really must have been very thick if the locals in Glasgow described it as such. If you don't know, Glasgow has a very, very thick, very distinct accent within Scotland. And those that have very thick Glaswegian accents, for people from outside of Glasgow, they can be really difficult to understand. Other people who had spoken with him at the dance hall noted that he would slip Bible verses into casual conversation. Hence the moniker he was eventually given, Bible John. 
Jemima left with the stranger sometime after midnight and they were seen walking together towards her home at approximately 12.40am on Sunday the 17th. However, she never got home. Jemima's sister Margaret grew very concerned when morning came and Jemima wasn't there. She kept a cool face in front of her sister's children, but she became increasingly worried as the day wore on. It wasn't like Jemima to bail like this. And it wasn't like her not to call either. Her fear grew even more when rumours sparked in the neighbourhood that a group of local kids had gone and played in an abandoned building and found a body. The building was only a few blocks from Jemima's house. By Monday morning, the body had not yet been reported to police. And this, I, I don't know why it wasn't. Maybe people didn't believe the kids when they said they found a body. But Margaret took it seriously and she went to the building herself, where she was the one to discover her own sister's corpse and called the police. And man, if identifying your colleague's corpse was bad, your own sister? Holy shit, I really can't imagine it. Jemima's body was lying face down. Unlike Patricia, she was fully clothed, though her underwear had been practically shredded, and her shoes and stockings were laid next to her. And her purse was missing. Like Patricia, she had been badly beaten, especially around the face, and she had been strangled with her own stockings. The post-mortem revealed that she had died around 30 hours before her body was found. She had been raped. And she had also been on her period at the time of her death. Just like with Patricia, police began door-to-door inquiries around the area where the body was found. One woman in the area was able to tell police that she remembered hearing a woman's screams that night, but she didn't remember the approximate time that she heard it. Police also talked to the people that were at the Barrowland at the same time as Jemima, and they were able to describe the man that I briefly talked about earlier. They told police that he was approximately 6 foot to 6 foot 2, which is around 183 to 188 centimeters tall, and he had some fair streaks in his brown hair. And of course, there were those Bible quotes that he managed to sneak into conversation, which was just, was just odd, even in the more religious time of the 1960s. When police started their investigation into Jemima's murder, they originally treated it as an isolated case and didn't connect it to Patricia, even though they had very striking similarities. Fortunately, though, it didn't take long for them to unofficially link the cases, which just means that they treated it as one possible theory, but they were working others as well. And I think that's the best way to go about it. So props to the Glasgow police. Because so many people had seen Jemima dancing with the man believed to have murdered her and had even spoken with him, police had a lot more to go on with Jemima's case than with Patricia's. None of the locals at the Barrowland that night recognized the man, But, because both of the victims had been in secluded areas, investigators theorized that while he didn't live in the area of Glasgow where these murders were taking place, he was very familiar with it. With all the descriptions the police now had of the man, they were able to put together a composite sketch of their suspect, which was actually the first time that had ever been done in a Scottish murder investigation. The sketch was handed over to the press and printed all over Glasgow. It was even shown on the evening news, which would have been extremely unusual at the time. Police began going undercover at the Barrowland, 
both male and female police officers pretended to be patrons, scoping out the dance hall for the suspect, but they were forced to stop in October 1969 after they had failed to produce any suspects. And it wasn't a very good secret, their being undercover at the Barrowland, because their surveillance was blamed as being the cause behind a big drop in attendance. But, I mean, that also could have been due to the fact that two women had been murdered after going there. But I think people would probably feel a lot safer having the police there, unless they were trying to do some illegal things like drugs, which it was the 60s, I mean, probably. They should have stayed, however. They left too soon. Because on October 31st, 1969, a man was out for a walk with his dog when he came upon Bible John's latest victim. 29-year-old Helen Puttock. She was found in her own back garden next to a drain pipe. She was partially naked and, like the other two women, had been viciously beaten in and around the face, raped and strangled to death with her own stocking. Her handbag, like the others, was missing, though its contents had been shaken out into the grass next to her. The soles of Helen's shoes and feet were grass-stained, indicating that she put up one hell of a fight before being overpowered by her assailant. She had even tried to scale a nearby railway embankment at one point. Unlike the other two victims, Helen had a bite mark on her inner right thigh as well as some semen which was collected for evidence. But like the other two, she was menstruating at the time of her murder. And wouldn't you know it, the night of her murder... Helen had gone to the Barrowland dance hall with her sister, Jeannie. They had split up when they first got there and both ended up spending time with, dancing with, and chatting to two different men named John. Jeannie's John had told the women that he worked as a slater and lived in a nearby district. Helen's John didn't say where he lived or what he did for work. The two Johns, Helen and Jeannie, spent a good hour together at the Barrowland and then all four left together when the dance hall closed, heading home. John the Slater, who had danced with Jeannie, broke off from the group to head in the direction of his home, and the other three grabbed a taxi. They all rode together for about 20 minutes until they reached Jeannie's place, where she got out and bid them a good night, leaving her sister with the John she had spent the evening dancing with. This John was tall, had reddish hair, was well-dressed and well-spoken, with a thick Glaswegian accent, and slipped Bible quotes into conversation. Helen and John got out of the taxi together a short while later, and, well, we know the rest. Helen's case was by far the most promising when it came to capturing the killer because her sister Jeannie had spent so much time with him that evening. She had chatted with him, shared a taxi with him, and trusted him to get her sister home safely. Jeannie was able to expand the profile of the killer a lot. When it came to the biblical quotations, she said that he referenced the Old Testament and the stories of Moses, and that he had called the Barrowland an, quote, adulterous den of iniquity, unquote. And, after finding out that Helen had a husband, had also talked about how morally repugnant it was that married women went there, and that married women who went to dance halls were adulterous in nature, even though Helen's husband George had no problem with her going out dancing with her sister. But according to Judgmental John, 
a married woman going out and enjoying herself was just the worst possible thing she could do. You know what else is morally repugnant? Rape. And murder. Chew on that for a while, judgmental John. Anyway. With all of this new information, police and the public were both very confident that they would finally be able to catch the killer who had murdered three women so openly. Three women who had all been to the same dance hall, where people had seen them with the killer, where people had talked to and shared cabs with the killer. The investigation looked so promising. Jeannie couldn't quite remember what he had said his full name was. It was something like John Templeton, John Emerson, or John Sembleson. She couldn't, she couldn't quite remember. And of course, he could have always given a false name. There's no reason to think that he would be truthful about his full name. And even though he had quoted the Old Testament several times in the taxi, he indicated that he was neither Protestant nor Catholic. And obviously, there are many sects of Christianity— but Catholicism and Protestantism absolutely dominate in the British Isles. So being neither, especially back then, would have been considered very unusual and would have been very, very, very notable. Jeannie also noted that John seemed to be pretty annoyed by her being in the cab with them. Jeannie tried her best to lighten the mood by asking John what he usually did for Hogmanay, and he told Helen that he didn't drink at all, because he had been conditioned to avoid it from his strict parents. Okay, cool. No big deal. He then added, quote, I don't drink at Hogmanay, I pray, unquote. And for those of you who don't know what Hogmanay is, uh, Hogmanay is what they call New Year's in Scotland. Hogmanay is actually a bigger holiday than Christmas. It's really the biggest holiday of the year. I've actually been to Hogmanay in Edinburgh. They have a big celebration in the street, and I will be telling some stories from that experience in this week's layover on Patreon. So head over there on Thursday if you want to have a listen to those stories. Jeannie actually remembered even more details about John, like how he had been wearing a brown Reed and Taylor suit, that he smoked embassy cigarettes, that he had overlapping front teeth, and that he said he had worked at a laboratory at one point. He was also very familiar with many of the pubs in the Yorker district of Glasgow, which was several miles away from the Barrowland area. There was even another alleged sighting from the night Helen was murdered that came from a bus driver and conductor working the night shift. A man matching Jeannie's description had requested a stop at 2am. The driver and conductor said the man looked completely disheveled. He had a cut on one of his cheeks beneath the eye and mud stains all over his jacket. They also both noticed that he was repeatedly tucking the cuff of his shirt into his jacket. And this is important because a man's cufflink was actually found next to Helen's body. And he wouldn't need to be tucking his cuff into his jacket if he had a cufflink. The last time John was seen, he was headed towards the public ferry which crosses the River Clyde in the southern part of the city. And if that's where he lived which would be a safe bet in my opinion, then that confirms the police's earlier theory that he was very familiar with the area of Glasgow where he committed the murders, but he didn't live there. But this would be the last confirmed sighting of Bible John. There was no doubt in anyone's head that the murders had all been done by the same person. 
they had all met the killer at the same place, they were all mothers, they all had their purses taken, they had all been strangled and beaten over the face, they were all killed in close proximity to their homes, they had all been raped, and they had all been on their periods. That's just too many similarities for them to have not been killed by the same person. So at this point, the police had a solid physical description, personal information, a possible name, and an approximate area of the city where he most likely lived. But this case still remains unsolved. So why is that? Let's take a look at the investigation and then at some possible theories. Jeannie aided the police as best she could. With her description, they made another composite sketch. And when they showed her the original, which came from Jemima's murder, she said that the likeness was excellent. The sketch was distributed all over Glasgow, and the police asked the public to report to them if the sketch looked like anyone that they knew. They also took special care to go to 450 barbers and hairdressers in the city to ask if they had given anyone the same haircut John had, which was actually unfashionably short at the time. But they had no luck. They also visited 920 dentists and doctors all over the city to check to see if they had any male patients matching the description with overlapping front teeth. But that also led nowhere. Same with the 260 tailors they visited to inquire about any customers buying the brown Reed and Taylor suit. None of these methods did a damn thing, but I must admit, I think they were pretty smart strategies. Glasgow police assigned over 100 detectives to work the case. Within the first year of the investigation alone, they took over 50,000 witness statements from door-to-door inquiries. They questioned more than 5,000 suspects and poor Jeannie was forced to attend over 300 identity parades, but she vehemently denied that any of the men she saw were Bible John, despite the police's best efforts. The press absolutely loved this case and the mystery of it all. Papers with stories about the killer would sell better than those without, and the press certainly did their part in keeping the case in the public consciousness, even if the stories that weren't a direct reporting of events were absolute horseshit. They still sold. People started reporting sightings all over the city, in every location you could possibly imagine. Pubs, schools, parks, public transport, supermarkets, everywhere. And police could hardly keep up. It was so hard, they began handing out cards to all these men that basically said, I'm not Bible John. In case any of them were mistaken for the murderer again, they could just show the card and then the police wouldn't have to waste their time questioning the same person again. And through all of this, there was an air of hysteria in the city. Police and the public were absolutely terrified that he would strike again, and a team of 16 detectives were given the job of mingling in dance halls all over the city, not just the Barrowland, but they did concentrate on there on Thursdays through Sundays when they had their over 25s events which was the event attended by all of the victims. Despite all of these truthfully very good and smart methods to try and catch the sexually sadistic killer, the heat of the three murders gradually faded until they all became cold cases. No other murders happened, 
No sightings that ever led anywhere. No developments at all. Eventually, people just started to guess that he either died, was arrested for something else, was committed to a mental hospital, or simply moved away. Which, of all of those, that last one moving away seems the most likely to me. And police actually took that theory seriously, and they sent the composite sketch to officials of the Royal Army, the Royal Navy, the Royal Air Force, both at home and abroad in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. But nothing, nothing ever came from anything. Normally, in a case like this, I would assume that there was a lot of incompetence on the part of the police, that the investigation was very poor. But I think in this case, they actually did a wonderful job taking things seriously and scouring the city for any possible leads, but they got wildly unlucky. So this brings us to the theories about who Bible John is. And there are a good few. I'm actually not going to go over all of them here, but some of them are just dumb nothing burgers, so why waste your time? Over the years, people have pointed fingers to several men who they think could possibly match the description and who would have been in the area at the time. But for one reason or another, none of them were ever formally convicted. The first is of a man whose name was never publicly released, but who is referred to as John White. Former Detective Chief Inspector Les Brown, who worked on the case, was sure that this was their man. He was a patron of the Barrowland who fit the physical description and was arguing with a woman outside of the dance hall at the time of his arrest. He gave the police a false name and a false address when he was arrested, and he was brought in for questioning, but he was subsequently released without charge because his front teeth didn't overlap. However, they did finally get his real name and address, which revealed that he lived in the Gorbals, which is on the south bank of the River Clyde, where the killer was suspected to have lived. Detective Brown never forgot this suspect. He thought he was the most likely perpetrator, and some years later he spoke with another detective who had taken John White to a nearby hospital immediately after his arrest to treat a gash in his head. The second the handcuffs were taken off and he was alone, he broke out from the hospital, which doesn't exactly scream innocence. In addition to all of the circumstantial evidence against him, Detective Brown said that he and some of his colleagues were sure it was him because of his quote-unquote whole demeanor made them certain that it was him. Detective Brown even wrote an autobiography in 2005 and mentioned John White, and that made John White come forward and offer up his DNA for a test to clear his name, which it ultimately did. And I can't picture how Detective Brown must have felt in that instance. Like, you've you've been saying this for the majority of your career at this point, over almost 40 years, and, and you even write it in your own autobiography. And then the guy's just like, it wasn't fucking me, and gets the DNA test, and it proves it wasn't him. And he's just like, see, I, I would feel like such a moron. Though, to be fair to Detective Brown, it really was a good theory. The next theory came in 1983, when an anonymous person called the police to inform them that he believed Bible John was his friend, whom he had often gone to the Bowerland ballroom with in the 60s. 
They'd grown up together in Glasgow, and according to this anonymous individual, his friend looked just like the man in the composite sketch. So why did he come forward in 1983? Well, he said he saw an article written about the cold case from five years before, didn't think much about it, and then suddenly realised it was probably his friend who was living in the Netherlands at the time with his Dutch wife. And like, like, that's it. That's the theory. There's no other information. It completely dries up there. There was no more information about the anonymous tip or the man in the Netherlands. Honestly, this is a nothing burger, but I, I did kind of think it was funny. Because how could you look at, if a composite sketch looks that much like your friend, how would you not notice it for five years? Only a man. Only a man would be that obtuse. There was another theory that said Bible John was also a serial rapist in addition to being a serial killer. In the few years following the killings, several women came forward to say that they had been raped by a man after leaving the Barrowland. One of those women was named Hannah Martin, who claims that she was raped by Bible John in 1969 and gave birth to his daughter in 1970. But just like everything else, nothing came of this theory and the daughter was never DNA tested to see if there were any matches with the DNA left at the crime scene. I'm not sure if I believe this theory, but if the daughter is willing, I think it would be a good idea to get her DNA and maybe he could be identified through genealogy like the Golden State Killer was. But I know that's just wishful thinking, and there are actually issues with the DNA, but we'll talk about that in a second. The most popular theory is that Bible John is the convicted serial killer named Peter Tobin, who murdered a Polish woman by the name of Angelika Kluk in 2006, when he was 60 years old. He had beaten her, raped her, and stabbed her to death, and he was arrested in 2007 and sent to prison. And while the stabbing was very clearly not the MO of Bible John, there are a lot of things which point to the possibility of Tobin being John. Firstly, he was from Glasgow, and he was a regular at the Barrowland in the 1960s before marrying his first wife in 1969, the year the murders stopped. And he relocated to Brighton in England, where he lived for the next 20 years. And then starting in the 80s, he began moving back and forth between England and Scotland. Tobin's first murder was not Angelica, however. In 1991, he murdered two teenage girls and their bodies, which had long been skeletonized, were dug up in the yard of his house in Kent. After his arrest in 2007, he was given a whole-of-life sentence in 2008, so he is in prison, whether or not he's Bible John, he is currently in prison and he will stay there forever, which is good. And he has reportedly boasted to several people in the prison that his body count is in the dozens, going far beyond the three that he was sentenced for. Dozens sounds like a huge exaggeration to me, but whether or not Tobin is Bible John, I don't think it's very likely that he only had three victims. I personally think there has to be several more. But let's talk a bit more about the similarities he shared with Bible John. For one, 
He looked just like the composite sketch when he was in his 20s back in 1969. Though I'm not sure if he has the crooked teeth. I couldn't find any pictures of Peter Tobin smiling. He was married three times. And all of his ex-wives said that he was just awful. And he would often rape, beat, and even throttle them. And he would always become particularly enraged and prone to violence towards them when they were menstruating. Which sounds quite familiar, I have to say. In fact, the investigators had long theorized that Patricia, Jemima, and Helen were all murdered because they were on their periods. They think that Bible John proposed sex only for them to decline because of their periods, throwing him into a fit of rage that led to their murders. As if getting your period wasn't shitty enough. Additionally, Tobin had been raised by very, very strict Roman Catholic parents and had some pretty hard-line religious views. I know that Bible John indicated he was neither Protestant nor Catholic, but I mean, it honestly sounds like a lie anyway, so him being Roman Catholic honestly makes a lot of sense, and Catholicism has more of a hold in Scotland than Protestantism does. Tobin also went by several aliases, one of which was John Semple. And if you remember earlier, Helen's sister Jeannie couldn't quite remember the name he said and thought it could have been John Sempleson, which is super close and definitely sounds like a small detail. You could easily mess up if you're trying to recall something that you put zero effort into remembering especially at the end of a night out because Jeannie had been drinking. So yeah, John Semple, John Sempleson, easy mix up. Even if you're sober, that's an easy mix up. A highly respected Scottish criminologist named David Wilson actually dedicated three years of his life into looking at Tobin as a suspect in the Bible John case. And to this day, he stands by the theory that it's Tobin. The moment that truly convinced him came at Tobin's trial, when a friend of one of the murdered teenagers in 1991 testified that she had had a conversation with Tobin the night her friend was abducted and murdered, and the conversation mirrors that of what Jeannie had experienced by a lot. Tobin had told this friend that he didn't drink at Hogmanay, and that his cousin had once got a hole-in-one while playing golf. The second one I didn't mention earlier because it didn't fit the vibe of the script, but he did say that to Jeannie as well. Sorry. With this information and the circumstantial evidence we already went over, Wilson said, quote, I didn't set out to prove Tobin was Bible John, but I would stake my professional reputation on it, unquote. As a result of this mounting evidence that Tobin is Bible John, the police launched an investigation which they called Operation Anagram, where they traced Tobin's whereabouts through the decades to try and link him to more crimes, including the ones of Bible John. A few women came forward and claimed to have been raped by Tobin after meeting him at the Barrowland. And honestly, maybe we should compare his DNA to that of Hannah Martin's daughter. Just saying. First accusation was in 1968, not too long after Patricia's murder, 
Another woman who came forward and claimed to have been raped by Tobin after meeting him at the Barrowland said that he had introduced himself as Peter and pestered and pestered her about letting him go home with her. She was shown photos of Tobin around that time and she said that it was definitely him and continued saying, quote, He was the man who came up to me so many years ago in the Barrowlands. I am 100% certain that Tobin is Bible John, unquote. And all of this just makes it sound so obvious that it was him. But there are very solid reasons that this is still a theory and not fact. The first and probably the biggest is attributed to a lot of misreporting, which says that he moved to England in 1969 after the last murders. But we know that he was in Brighton in England on August 6th. 1969, 10 days before Jemima's murder. And we know this because that was the date of his wedding to his first wife, which is proven by their marriage certificate. And that ex-wife, Margaret, swears that they were on their honeymoon when Jemima was killed and that Tobin was definitely with her the entire time. And she's not really a fan of him either. They divorced in 1971, only two years after they got married, at a time when divorce was very much still frowned upon, so it must have been bad. So I don't see how she would have any reason to lie about this, to protect him, especially when he definitely murdered those other three women that he's sitting in prison for. And this also extends to Helen's murder as well. He would have needed to travel all the way to Glasgow and back without Margaret noticing and I just, I just don't see how that would have been doable. DNA testing with the Bible John case is actually no longer considered to be reliable because poor storage of the few samples that they have has led to their deterioration and results can't be trusted to be accurate. They did try to compare Tobin's teeth with that of the bite mark left on Helen, but no dice. And honestly, I got excited when I first read this theory, like, yes, that has to be him. How could it not be? But I think there is actually really compelling evidence that supports his innocence, at least in the Bible John murders. I truly don't think it's Peter. I'm not saying it's impossible. There's certainly plenty of circumstantial evidence stacked against him, and circumstantial evidence is still evidence, you know? But I don't think it's enough to convince me, especially with his ex-wife, Margaret. Why would she lie on his behalf when they got divorced in 1971 after only two years of marriage? Because you could make the argument of, oh, he could still have some sort of hold over her. And it's not impossible, but it does seem unlikely to me. And I, I don't think I don't think it's Tobin. I want it to be Tobin. I want it to be Tobin so badly because it would be so easy because he's already in prison and he's already going to be there for the rest of his life and case closed, whatever. But I just don't think that it is. So to this day, despite all the information on the killer that we have, despite the manhunt that they carried out, which was the most expensive in Scottish history, the murders of these three women remain unsolved, and they remain a part of the collective consciousness of Scotland. There are so many disagreements about who Bible John is. To this day, there still isn't a universal consensus that they were done by the same person. 
Jemima and Helen for sure, but Patricia, the first victim, was killed a year and a half earlier, which is an awfully long gap, though I do believe that all of the victims are linked personally. There are too many other similarities. The gap is the least of our worries, in my opinion. Every now and then, the case gets looked at or just briefly examined from a new angle to try something else out, but for the most part, investigators in Scotland don't even really like to touch it anymore. And at this point, it's so old and there's a cultural divide now. Dance halls haven't been a thing for a long time. You know, they were very much a thing of the 1960s, 70s, 50s, but they're not a thing anymore. And this case now is sort of got a mythical, legendary feel to it within Scotland. So I think sort of like the Zodiac Killer in the United States. The only person we know to have had a full conversation with Bible John, Helen's sister Jeannie, passed away in 2010 at 74. She spent her life trying to find her sister's killer. And she was actually approached with the theory of it being Tobin, and was shown photos of what he looked like at the time of the murders. But she insisted that he was absolutely not the man whom she spoke to in the taxi the last time she saw her sister. And you know what? That's good enough for me. That brings us to the end of this case, to the end of the Bible John episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to see pictures from this case, the pictures of the women as well as the composite sketch, which is actually credit to the artist. It's actually a pretty beautiful drawing. If I just wish it wasn't of a serial killer. You can find them on the social media, which is at TrueCrimeINTL on Instagram, or you can also join the Facebook group, which is just True Crime International. Um, if you are enjoying this this new content and you would like more of it, you can head on over to the Patreon. There are actually three levels now. Uh, there's a $3 level, a $5 level, and a $7 level. I, my goal is to always keep the Patreon affordable. And I'm putting out a lot of content over there. So please, please come over and hang out because it would be really cool. And last but not least, if you listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate a five-star review. Apple Podcasts is like the key to breaking out in the podcast space. And five-star reviews are a great way to be seen by the people that run it, the algorithm, whatever it is. Uh, so please, a five-star review would be greatly appreciated. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I had uh, a lot of fun researching it. It went a lot deeper than I thought it was going to. And please remember, if you want to be in any of these episodes, you can join the Facebook group and check out the list of countries. It's going to be pinned at the top, the list of countries that I'm covering in this new season. And if you are of any of these countries, cultures, whatever, um, and you are interested in helping out in the show, you can message me anywhere and uh, let me know. And I will gladly ask you questions while I'm writing the script. And in exchange for your help, I will give you a shout out on the show. And I will also promote any small business that you want me to. Within reason, of course, I will be researching all of these businesses. And if they seem unethical or in any way harmful, I will not promote them. And I also just will not use your information in the show at that point. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, I got to go. I, I'm hungry. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you enjoyed your stay at True Crime International. Mm -hmm.